Welcome to the 62nd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about immutable infrastructure. We've been preparing a long time for this one. Immutable infrastructure gets, the term gets kicked around a lot without actually getting defined terribly well. And Oh, it's definitely buzzword city. And a lot of it really is a change in workflow for developers. There are significant implications on the operation side of the fence, and that's why we were talking about it today. So we're not going to go into a lot of the, the nitty-gritty about why this is better for code deployment. We're going to touch on it briefly, but that's not the meat of what we're talking about today. We're talking about building systems that handle and why immutable is better in, in the ways that it's better for doing operations work. How it's different, how it's better for some things and not for other things. So the first time that I can find reference on the internet to it is Chad Fowler's June 2013 blog post titled, Trash Your Servers and Burn Your Code, Immutable Infrastructure and Disposable Components. It walks you through a lot of the pieces of the benefits of instead of trying to log into servers and deploy software or log into server and make changes, you spin up new VMs or you spin up new instances in your cloud provider of choice with new code in it. And then you use your load balancer to shift your shift the work over to the new instances and terminate the old ones. And it helps prevent state drift. It helps prevent a lot of the anti-patterns that people develop in configuration management. It helps to prevent a lot of the other kind of cruft that happens where you have long-running apps that people are scared to update or don't know how to update anymore or have been running for so long they don't know if it's safe to restart them. Because the idea is you're moving all of your changes into this constant cycle of updates and it's pretty laudable i think the important thing here is to really examine the history of how we got to the concept of immutable infrastructure and that history is you know, based in having modern cloud platforms that are ubiquitous nowadays azure uh, google cloud platform not to mention aws um, there are of course others out there but they make it really easy to build up things and tear them down and rebuild and redeploy really quickly. And they also do one thing that's really key important. Most of your cloud platforms will host your monitoring metrics, your MySQL databases, perhaps some Cassandra-ish S3 in Amazon is universally known. Uh, and most cloud providers try to emulate that service, in fact. But essentially, cloud providers provide managed services or some sort of services that host and take care of your data for you. So you outsource that functionality to your cloud platform and your responsibility for rolling forward your application, which you can do very easily in a stateless environment then. Yeah, there's a great article or manifesto or whatever written by some Heroku developers in 2011, predating the immutable infrastructure term, called the 12-factor app manifesto. It kind of illuminated a better pattern for building web apps of how you manage your deploys, how you manage your resources, how you abstract a bunch of the components. You don't deliver config with your code. You don't do a bunch of other pieces. And one of the the central tenets of it was... You have your backing store, your database, your NoSQL, your whatever it was that you're, that you're talking to. Just be another resource trigger. So you have a URI and you have authentication. And 
in dev, it points at the, the dev repository and in product points at another one. And if you wanted to switch from a locally hosted MySQL to Amazon RDS or whatever it is, you just change the string in the configuration file and redeploy. It was a really interesting way of shifting it, but it was very clear that the 12-factor app stuff is only for the web server. It doesn't apply to most of the rest of the stack because it's assuming that all of your state and all of your data is saved in some some nebulous repository that you're not worrying about. So I have to say, I really like the 12-factor app stuff. I really have been drawn to it in a, in a number of different ways. Primarily, the fact that the 12-factor app manifesto lays out a standard way for application developers of any elk to build applications. How you handle standard in and standard out for logs, configuration via environment variables, having being able to produce apps that work and are configured and managed in the same way is an incredibly powerful concept. And that's something that, that I really like a lot. Um, you know, perhaps we can't do that universally as the 12-factor app manifesto, you know, aims. But even in in one company that you're building SOA applications in, shouldn't all the applications have a general defined set of behaviors that you expect from application to application rather than each developer team just kind of going crazy on their own thing? It also gets you out of the other crazy anti-pattern that I've seen my entire career where production has one set of constraints and staging and testing and QA and all of the other environments are different in important ways. So you're not actually building and deploying and testing the same thing in the same places. You have, oh, well, QA is different. QA, QA needs the special snowflake thing over here. And so we, did, we have a different library we load or whatever it is. And so the 12-factor thing pushes you into, no, all of this, all the code checkouts are built from Git commits, and that's it. We, we run the same code everywhere. The, the differing thing is what strings we pass to it when we're, we're starting it up. I don't usually write web apps when I'm ending up writing code, but I try to follow as much of the 12-factor app stuff as I can because I do find it really useful, and the standards that it builds are just very powerful. So clearly you can tell that we like that part. I think another thing that we've been talking about on this this podcast for a little while now is the rise of Docker to power. And I think immutable infrastructure was a large proponent of what made Docker as powerful as it is now. People started moving to this pattern, this you build an artifact, you you package it up, you deploy it, and then you deploy new versions of it later and shut down the old ones. That model fits Docker really well. And I think yes, that these kind models of... go hand in hand. The fact that you have a solid infrastructure and toolage around building an image of your application and shipping it and running it is exactly what you're looking for. The problem on the operation side with a lot of these pieces is most of the the mind share that's gone into setting up immutable or is gonna setting up um twelve factor stuff ignores the reality of running certain pieces of the back end stack. If you are doing well the one that I'm I'm closest to just because I happen to know a lot of the pieces of it. So if you're paying as you go for a logging environment, so you're paying some provider some many dollars either per gig or per lines of code or whatever it is that you're that you're pushing, that works out pretty well because you don't really pay attention to the operational aspects of how do you persist the logs and how do you replicate the logs and how do you handle all those pieces of it. 
But if you're large enough that you can't financially, you can't just buy an off the shelf pay as you go locking provider and you have to run something like Elasticsearch or you're running Splunk internally or any of the other um, competitors, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to try to manage some of the pieces of immutable infrastructure as applied to things that really need state and really need to run their own state engines. Other examples of MySQL or metrics platforms or... Anything storing state. So in the show notes is a DigitalOcean article about immutable infrastructure, which I think is one of the best articles I've ever read about this topic. This article explains immutable infrastructure in a very unbiased way. They work really hard not trying to to champion one one method or another. And so it's a very even-kill factual definition of what immutable infrastructure is and what you need to think about when you want to deploy in the immutable infrastructure style. And part of that article lists several requirements that you should have in place as you're making this transition to immutable infrastructure. And I talked about before, you've got to run on a cloud platform. The ideas of an immutable infrastructure are based on being on a modern cloud platform. Number two, you're going to need a fully automated continuous integration or continuous deployment pipeline. You have to have automation to do your deploys. How else do you do you shoot the old guys in the head and bring up the new ones? And a service or an architecture, a modular architecture that builds up the entire functionality of your service is is a definite assumption, if not requirement. So you can deploy small parts of the entire monolith and, of course, keep those deployment cycles separate as needed. You're also not trying to have a update to your authentication service to handle an error also take out some logging backend or some other piece of the stack. You want to make sure that you're you're restarting the smallest piece you can when you're making a change. Yeah. The next requirement in the immutable infrastructure bit is to be able to separate a stateless volatile application layer from your persistent data layer. And those have to be very separate. And for deploying web apps where you point at a a cloud SQL um, uh, managed instance or whatever they call it in your favorite cloud provider, that's your stateless volatile application layer that you can easily deploy. But really, the the hard requirement is, is making sure that you have your persistent data layer set up in operation to support this immutable infrastructure model. And you can attack that by a lot of different ways. And as I mentioned before, a lot of this functionality is just built into your cloud platform. But you need to take care of logging, of metrics, and whatever databases or S3 buckets you're using to hold your actual data. Yeah, anything that you want to have, anything that you want to have retained data after a system restart, you have to make sure that you have thought about clearly and carefully and either outsourced to your provider of choice or that you have a story internally to handle that data and that persistence. And need I remind you that you don't run a business without data, whether you're tracking users or selling things, 
you don't have a business without some sort of data. Um, I have a background in the university. You can't educate students without databases full of their grades. So data is, the data itself is where our value is. And that that's why we look at, at protecting data very, very highly. Because if you lose your data, you know, it doesn't matter how great your code is. It's time to pack up your shop. And there's another hard requirement which is you have a shared sense of purpose, um, of dedication between your engineering and operations teams. Having a good DevOps culture really is critical to pulling this kind of shift off, especially if you are using a different style and you're moving into this environment because you have to work together on all of these aspects. Otherwise, it is not going to work. And it can be very different. There are lots of moving parts in an immutable infrastructure style environment uh, complexities of CI, CD, different containers you're using, more moving parts than older styles of deployment. So it's highly, po- it's very possible that not one person in your organization will have the full picture of the entire pipeline in his brain. They, there will have to be multiple people that understand several different overlapping segments of your pipeline to deploy in an immutable environment. Oh, and one uh, thing that pops up when you work in immutable environments, shell access is discouraged. There's actually a movement for no SSH to not, not to make SSH difficult, but actually to disable the ability to SSH into servers at all. Because the shell idea access is... Shell access just gives you a gateway to make custom changes, purposely or accidentally. And that goes against what we're trying to achieve here. It, it it introduces drift in configuration and state very, very rapidly. And then you run into, okay, this is not immutable. And a lot of the benefits immutable of, of immutable are no longer clearly applicable to your environment. And the no SSH movement posits that you should, instead of SSHing into a server to make a config change, that you should deploy a new image with that config change across everything and the deploy should be very easy and very painless and very routine. So there's nothing magical about doing a deploy. There's nothing, there's nothing difficult or nothing out of the ordinary. You don't do deploys once a week. You do deploys 15 times a day or however often things, however often you land a commit that has all of his tests pass. This little detail is one of the, the signs along the path that indicate that you're doing immutable infrastructure well. This little detail also gives me the willies at night. Um, I wrote an application not long ago to help me manage some of my monitoring and metrics uh, Prometheus uh, uh, details. And I wrote it in Go, and lo and behold, it caused kernel oopses, which still boggles me to this day. Um, But how... Would I have successfully debugged uh, what was actually going on there, a, a misbehaving library in my in my Go stack? Um, were I forbidden from being able to SSH into an affected machine and analyze its state very carefully? And that's, I, I'm hoping, Brendan, that one of our, our dear listeners will, will comment on how I'm supposed to uh, fix that part. Well, an argument can be made that with proper instrument instrumentation, 
all of the things that you would want SSH in for should be covered. The trouble is it shifts the burden from knowing how to inspect the state of the running object during a problem to having to predict what the problems are going to be and then deploying code to let you check, okay, is it this library or that library or however it works? I think the... What you're looking for is good observability, not necessarily visibility. Correct. Um, and it's it's hard to to get that right. And as you reduce the surface of the thing you deploy, as long as you have fewer and fewer components that you're shipping, at some point... That becomes S- easier. File utils goes away. SSH goes away. But it also pulls away the other layers of, oh, did my logging driver fill something up? Or, oh, did this other thing happen? And it leads to kind of what I see the the future of immutable being, which is either using things like AWS Lambda, where you don't have a server. You just, you have the Lambda function call your code and write its output somewhere. There, there is no server to deploy. You just have a, a bundle of code. Or something like a unikernel, where you take the smallest conceivable footprint of whatever the thing is you're running so that you could boot it on a hypervisor. You're not you're not even trying to load this as a Docker image. This is a this is a tiny tiny thing stripped down to the barest library calls that it needs. So your application is only running what it absolutely has to. And at that point, you better have observability and visibility solved because there is no way in to inspect other than whatever endpoints you've given given yourself. I think unikernels are much more theory than practice, frankly. They um, exist. They're, they're experimental, they but exist. they exist. What I see in that direction is, and we get this using uh, Go today, is the fact that you can build a Docker container purely of a statically linked Go library as nothing other than that Go library in it and deploy that Docker container and run it. I still think kernels will be quite generic. For the time being, absolutely. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't actually predict the future. If I could, I would I would not be in the line of work I'm in. We wouldn't be making this podcast, and we'd be rolling in it. Yes, but I think Docker containers based on the scratch image, which is the, the no content kind of base image, mm-hmm. really are phenomenal things because they get your footprint down. They they make things a lot faster to start up and stop. You can get You can get things really quick. But I always start from a relatively large image when I'm building Docker images so I can get in and debug things, especially when I'm running locally um, or in a development environment because I want to see what's going on. I want to figure out what I did wrong on the operation side of things to bring, to bring a service up. And then as I iterate through the process, I move from a full image to the, the slim images to other things. I haven't actually gotten myself all the way down to scratch yet, but I'm working on it. I usually tend to stick to flavors of Ubuntu images, usually doing Docker stuff. I've played with Alpine. I like the Alpine stuff, but there's some additional magic needed to build fully static libraries from Go. Uh, It's mostly static, except it still links in your standard library, Libc, and how a lot of the smaller Docker uh, distributions reduce their footprint is using some of the alternate libc's available. Um, and if your libc isn't statically linked in and you switch out the binaries or the libraries for different implementation, your application doesn't run. And I've ended up having some 
really weird circumstances where things run fine doing some upgrades and something in Alpine changed, muscle libs see moved, and my code just stops working. And that has that has made me look pretty hard at just using some of the standard Ubuntu Docker images as sort of my base image. I know things work on them. I know I don't have to boil the oceans to figure out my edge cases. And I can iterate from there. And none of this is to say that the immutable infrastructure is a bad pattern. We really like the pattern. But you have to know how and why you're using it. Once you have solved data persistence and once you have solved observability and visibility, go as far as you like. Like there's some really powerful things in here and the benefits are huge. The the upside of this is tremendous for both developers and operations staff. Easy rollbacks, consistent QA staging environments, uh, no longer running chef or puppet. Sign me up. There are some incredible benefits here but like everything else on the internet um you got to work for it they don't come free one of the things i've seen is i've tried to learn more about uh, immutable infrastructure and that style of deployment is how people are dealing with their persistent data layer and i've seen a lot of articles a lot of nameless articles on the internet that either just completely avoid the topic of persistent data to saying, well, doing persistent data in a stateless model is really hard to, hey, well, if you're not doing immutable infrastructure for your databases, you're just not trying hard enough. And <laughs> storing data in an immutable infrastructure is not immutable. Uh, techniques that you need to use to build immutable infrastructure around a data storage service are complex and not for the faint of heart. Um, S3 at Google, uh, at Amazon, uh, Google's Google cloud storage buckets. I am sure that application is completely immutable, uh, but they have done quite a lot of work in erasure codings, in checksummings, in replications, in consensus algorithms to make sure that data is always in a consistent state. That's quite a lot of engineering prowess needed to to take an application that stores and manipulates data and truly run it in a immutable infrastructure style. That's not something that that can just happen to say your old and busted graphite server. Or the mainframe or that or the server that's handling your telecom stuff that was installed in nineteen ninety seven and is still running somehow. Yeah, your your legacy services manipulating data probably are going to have to be significantly redesigned and significantly upgraded to be truly uh to truly be immutable style infrastructure. If you're using Cassandra, you're really pretty close to this. Um, but if you have to tack on migrating your entire data store to Cassandra on top of the rest of the work to migrate to an immutable style infrastructure, it's important that that story be well-planned and well-thought-out so you know the requirements involved. To wrap up, sort of, 
I want to take apart uh, Randy Bias's uh, quote about pets versus cattle. It's a very common quote. I've seen it often um, used to explain pets versus cattle to justify immutable infrastructure or show the advantages of immutable infrastructure. I'll read the quote. In the old way of doing things, we treat our servers like pets. For example, Bob the mail server. If Bob goes down, it's all hands on deck. The CEO can't get his email and it's the end of the world. In the new way, servers are numbered like cattle in a herd. For example, www001 to www100. When one server goes down, it's taken out back, shot, and replaced on the line. So that's Randy Bias's quote, and I've, as I said, I've seen that quite a bit. I don't like it. I really dislike this example because it compares an email server. If you've ever hosted email, you probably know how much state and how quickly that changes and is manipulated. That is not a you state-free kind of service where you can just chuck some things into S3 and be done with it. But that compares that to web serving, which there are a lot of tools and techniques to make web serving completely immutable with your stuff in S3 or on NFS, some other shared file system, proxies. There's all sorts of magic that is a significantly easier problem to solve. And so while the pet versus cattle uh description is a really good description of of what we want to accomplish with immutable infrastructure. I still think that kind of shows that it's easy to to latch on to the new thing without fully thinking it through. And that's kind of the point that I want to drive home is immutable infrastructure is a good thing. Use it where you can. It brings lots of benefits to your to your infrastructure and to your way of of moving forward with your your business and your code. But migrating to it or making the decision to use it has has repercussions as well that need to be well understood before you can successfully use the model. Or you end up in a situation where you're half on one model and half on the other. And again, that's doable, but it's something you want to plan well about. Say something smart, Brendan. What I find amusing about the cattle versus pets is we've been doing this for a long time. This is this is not a new thing that came about with immutable infrastructure or came about with Docker or came about with cloud providers. I've been doing this for multiple decades. It's not I'm difficult not that old. if you've separated your your application layer from your data layer, like a lot of people have been talking about for again decades, that you have a pool of 10 or 15 or 20 web servers, and they're all exactly identical because they're looking at the same shared state backend, either a database or file server, whatever it is. So when one of them dies or gets overloaded, you just replace it. When the power supply or the CPU go out or when you need more to handle more load, you just add more. And there's nothing that says you can't do that with mutable. There's nothing that makes immutable magically give you cattle versus pets. It helps enforce the paradigm. It, it helps shift people into the model, but it's not required. And it does burn me up when people kind of imply that that's, that's the only way you can do this. 
all of these changes we're talking about require a lot of work. And I've heard some naive folks on the internet talk about how moving to this model means we can get rid of the operations staff. (laughs) And there is nothing further from the truth. All of this means a lot more involvement from operations staff and DevOps staff. It means you need operations staff who can program. It means you need operations staff who are a lot more skilled than a lot of the folks in the past. But you need operations work. There's a lot of things in this that There's require... There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and those moving parts all require care and feeding and maintenance and configuration. All of this is critically important. And this is back to one of the things that you said earlier, Jack, that the one of the requirements to do this is having the the commitment of the de- the engineering and operations teams to work together on this. Because if they don't work together... Not to mention your management. Yeah, if if the whole company isn't in on this, if the whole group that's that's running this isn't really invested in doing this, it's going to be really ugly and really painful, and it will probably not work the way you want it to work. So, like always, think these things through, plan them out carefully, try to understand why you're making a change. If you're somebody who says, "Hey, we should move to immutable infrastructure," understand what the benefits are for you. Not just what the benefits are for the industry at large, but how does it help shape and drive your ability to be to be quick to respond to problems, to be quick to respond to new features, to be quick to respond to other things, or what other benefits it can give you and your organization so you can better serve your customers and ultimately make you more money? Well said, Brendan. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 62nd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Docker, docker, docker. Woo, woo.